to us last week, um, titled Love Is. And so we're in 1 Corinthians 13. So I want to start, though, today the verse we're going to look at is the third verse, verse 3. But I want to start with the, uh, with the, end, of the, uh, the end of the chapter. And it says, Now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. And we find love here at the end of the chapter encompassed by faith and hope. And then love emerges as the greatest. And love is the greatest because love is eternal. You know, faith and hope, they're, tempor- they're temporary. When we get to heaven, they don't have a purpose when we get to heaven. But love is eternal. Love is the greatest because love is most like our God. Love is the link that God gives us between us and his eternal self. But in our culture today, we kind of have a, we tend to have a mixed up view of what love is. And so it's important that we as a church, that we get our roots back, our foundation back on what the Bible says that love is. And so that's what our series is about. We want to get our roots back in what the Bible says love is. In the English language, we have, we have one word for love. And it means, it means a lot of different things. We love our car. We love our house. We love our spouse. We love the kids. We, we love that movie. I loved it when the Dodgers won the World Series. But in the Greek language, they have a lot of different words for love. And in our, in our uh, text this morning in verse 3, it says, If I give away all I have, even offer myself up to be burned, but do not have love, I gain nothing. And the word for love, the word that's used here is agape. And that's the, the highest level of love. The most, there's no word for love that's more, more expressive than agape in the Bible. It, it, it embodies a, total, a picture of total self-sacrifice. If we could reread that verse, if I give away all I have, even offer myself up to be burned, but do not have a spirit of self-sacrifice, I gain nothing. And so, out of this verse in 1 Corinthians 3, I want to center in on a subject. I want to focus in on a subject that's, that can be uh, a little difficult, or it's extremely important, but can be difficult to talk about from the pulpit. And that's money. Stewardship. I remember back, I work in the fire department, I remember back uh, uh, several years ago, in the morning, we were checking out the 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 equipment, the fire engine, and a friend of mine were talking, and we were talking about the Bible, and we are talking about this other matter, a little more time on the job, comes up, and he, he, he hears our conversation, and he says, two things don't belong in a fire station, religion and politics. Now, I ever want to hear you talking about those again. It's kind of that way in the church, too. One thing I don't want to hear spoken from the pulpit is money. Now, I asked around as I was preparing for this this message, and I said to just a number of people, church, Bible, and money, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? And almost unanimously, corruption, you know, don't belong together, you know. That's the view that we have. But money is extremely important for us to talk about because the Bible talks about money a lot. In fact, there's over 800 verses on money. Some people say there's over 2,300 verses on money. I didn't count them. That doesn't really matter. The Bible talks about money a lot. And more importantly, Jesus talks about money a lot. In Matthew, Jesus talks about money 109 times. In Mark, 57 times. In Luke, uh, 
94 times in John, 88 times. Aside from salvation, Jesus talks about money more than any other subject. The money has the ability to impact our lives and transform us instantly like no other thing can. Uh, just recently, uh, my wife and I, we remodeled our house. And when the guy was uh, finishing, finished doing the tile work in our house, you know, we were marveling over the job he did. It was beautiful. He did such a great job. And we're standing there, and we're interacting with, the, with him. And you, if you were watching us, you would have thought that he was my best friend. You know, I was so excited and just so pleased with the work he did. And then all of a sudden, he says, uh, oh, by the way, the countertops weren't included. That's $1,200 more. It, what you talking? Instantly, it transformed me. I was, you know, I went from, you know, being this guy's best friend to it, it took me several minutes to, to calm down. And that, that's the impact that money can have on our, on our lives. I mean, more relationships have been destroyed because of money. Divorce, uh, uh, suicide, financial, more financial problems are the leading, leading cause of divorce. Economic hardships are one of the most uh, common reasons for uh, relationship problems. So it's important that we learn the value, the importance of being good stewards, that we learn stewardship. And we want to be good stewards of the resources that God has given us. So in our verse today, verse 3, it says, If I give away all I have, but do not have love, now, the obvious implication here is that, that, we could, that we can give and not have love. That we could give with the wrong attitude. That it's possible to give but not have that attitude of self-sacrifice. Last week when Kenny introduced this series, he said, anything minus love equals nothing. And it's that way with, uh, with giving. See, the issue here is the heart. The issue is the heart. The problem is, though, in our sinful condition, it's difficult for us to just go from point A to point B. We can't just say that since we should give, and we should give with a loving heart, that we can instantly do so. There's a gap here that we need to fill. There's, we have to learn how to go from the need to give, the desire to give, but to give with the right heart attitude, to give with this attitude of love, and so from this verse in 1 Corinthians 13, I want to launch out into the rest of the Bible and see what the Bible says about money. And see how the Bible helps us fill that gap to go from the gift to the love behind the gift. And so we want to turn to Hebrews 13, verse 5 and 6. In Hebrews it says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Now the writer here in Hebrews, he's directing this verse at believers. These are believers, and they're believers that many of them suffered tremendous persecution. Many of them have lost their homes, they've lost their livelihood, they've lost their jobs, they've been run out of their towns. These believers, they had money and they lost it. And what he's saying here is he's saying, do not love your money so much that in your attempt to keep from losing it or your attempt to get it back, that you would hinder your walk with the Lord. That we would hinder your witness for Christ. 
He was admonishing the believers to remain strong. See, the fear is, is that they would pull back from sharing their testimonies. That for fear of losing their money, for fear of continuing to lose their money. He's saying, don't let the love of money cause you to withhold witnessing to others. And so when we look at this verse, we're going to break it up into four parts here. And the four things that stand out for us to help fill that gap between giving and giving with a loving heart. The first thing that stands out is the presence of greed. Keep your life free from the love of money. We, the obvious implication here is that, that there is greed. That we have to deal with our greed. The Bible says a lot about greed. A lot about coveting. We can turn back to the Old Testament and look at the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments deal with our relationship between us and God. The remaining six deal with our relationship between us and each other. And the first nine commandments are external reactions. They're external. But when we get to the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet, it's kind of like the forgotten commandment. It's kind of like we do really good until we get to the tenth commandment. Thou shalt not covet. Coveting is like breaking the first commandment. When we break the tenth commandment, we're breaking the first commandment. It takes us back to you shall have no other gods before me. And he's saying here, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall love me. You shall trust me. You shall be satisfied in me. You shall be fulfilled in me. You shall be happy in me. That's what God is saying. The love of money comes when God no longer becomes the chief focus of our affections. We begin to secretly desire other things other than God. And that's why this is such a dangerous sin. Because it happens within the secret places of our heart. It gives birth to breaking the other commandments. It's for the love of money that we steal. It's for the love of money that we lie. It's for the love of money that, men, that parents are dishonored. It's for the love of money that we place other gods before God. Aside from the Ten Commandments, Proverbs talks a lot about greed as well. Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household. Proverbs 15, 27. And if you ever thought this doesn't apply to you, think about maybe your tax appointment. I remember back, uh, the, once again, the fire department, we, had a, um, we got a new tax guy. And this guy was a retired firefighter. So what he did was he researched all the options, all the available uh, deductions that we could claim, all the way to the maximum amount. And so I had a new appointment with him, and I'm on the phone with him, and he's going through this long list. I mean, it took almost 30 minutes. How many flashlights did you buy? Sunglasses, paper clips, every, things I'd never even heard of, things I would never even dream of buying. And he's going through this long list and everything's no, no, no. And you can tell the tension is starting to build. And finally he gets to, to dry cleaning him. No, I haven't done any dry cleaning. I, I never go to dry cleaners. And he says, he, he, he couldn't control himself. And he's like, he says, well, surely you must have done some dry cleaning. You could get $250. And he was trying to bait me. Into, into saying, you know, to justifying this, uh, you know, this deduction. Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household. So Jesus, Jesus addresses greed. In Luke uh, chapter 12, we find Jesus talking to a large crowd. And he's talking about things that matter. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about heaven and hell. He's talking about 
you know, really important stuff. And he's got this large crowd. And there's this guy in the crowd. And he's listening to Jesus. But on his mind, all he can think about is his, his uh, inheritance. And finally, he can't contain himself any longer. And he says, teacher, tell my brother to divide my inheritance with me. But see, Jesus' answer is important. Jesus responds by saying, beware, be on guard. Be on guard against all covetousness, but this is what will keep you from the kingdom of heaven. And basically Jesus is saying, watch out for false teachers and watch out for greed. These two things are going to keep you from the kingdom of heaven. Greed will keep you from the kingdom of heaven is what Jesus is saying. This is important. We can look back in the Old Testament. We have the story of Elisha and his servant Gehazi. In Naaman, he's a, a Syrian commander. He just left the city. He comes... They tell him, go down and see Elisha, and you, and you can get healed. So he comes down, he sees Elisha, Elisha tells him, go dip in the river Jordan. He has a hard time with that, and finally his, uh, his servants uh, tell him, you know, you better do it. So he goes and he does it, he dips in the Jordan, he becomes healed of his leprosy. Well, naturally, he wants to give Elisha all these gifts, and Elisha, being the man of God that Elisha is, he turns down the gifts. He doesn't want the focus to be on him, but on God. But then you have Gehazi, Elisha's servant. He's watching this play out, and the greed is building up within him. And he can't handle it. And so he chases after Naaman, and he lies to him. And he says, my master changed his mind. And you give, we'll take some of those gifts. And he takes the gifts, and he brings them back, and he hides them in his tent. Well, of course, he gets found out. And the end result is Gehazi ends up with the leprosy that Naaman had had. Greed is not a small issue with God. How about the story of Achan and Joshua? After the battle of Ai, they were told after this battle not to touch any of the spoils from the battle. Once again, Achan can't handle it. He sees these goods, and so he goes and he takes them for himself and hides them in his tent. Well, he's brought out, and they, they not only stoned him, but his whole family and his livestock burned him and then stoned him again. Greed is no small issue with God. Greed will separate us from the kingdom of heaven. Proverbs says, Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. So we need to address our greed. The second thing that stands out in that verse in Hebrews is the love of money. The love of money. Keep your life free from the love of money. The natural place to turn would be to 1 Timothy 6.10 where Paul's writing to Timothy and he says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. For context here, Paul's speaking, he's speaking through Timothy to correct issues that were happening in the Ephesian church. So when Paul brings up the subject through Timothy, we could conclude that this is something that the Ephesian church was struggling with. This is something that was being abused in the, in the Ephesian church. More particularly, we can conclude that these people were suffering the tragic results of loving money. The Bible is very thorough in its proclamation about the dangers of loving money. Jesus most notably said, where your treasure is, there your heart shall be. In other words, show me where your money is, and I'll show you where your affections lie. It's easy to suggest that you can measure, or you can, if I see your checkbook, that we can see what you really care about. 
or that you can measure a man's spiritual life by what he does with his money. And just to clarify, we're not saying that having money is wrong. I'm not saying that having money is wrong. Proverbs 8.21 says, God said to those who love me, I will fill up their treasuries. The overarching principle Paul is making here is not that there's anything wrong with money, but the love of it. See, money is like a loaded gun. It can protect you against an invader, but it could also take a life. See, the issue here isn't the money. It's your affection. Look at the rich young ruler. Jesus goes to him and he says, sell all you have and give to your poor. Have you ever noticed Jesus didn't say that to anybody else? He didn't tell Mary and Martha to sell all they had. He probably liked going to their house. He probably liked having dinner at their house. Jesus is not condemning possessions. The reason he told the rich young ruler to sell all he had and give to the poor is because all he had was what was separating him from God. Jesus is not looking down on ownership. In Deuteronomy 28, God says, I'll put you in the land. I'll prosper your families and your cattle and your sheep and your crops. He goes on and on about all that. Jesus is not saying that we shouldn't possess anything, but he is saying that this is a matter of the heart. Back to our verse in Timothy, Paul uses the word root. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. We have this picture of this root and then branching off of this root. There are all kinds of evil. If you think about that for a minute, there's no evil that we can imagine that cannot be the result in some way, shape, or form of the love of money. So, so what does this look like in our lives? How do we practically apply this? So just for a little self, uh, self-assessment, some questions that, that we could ask regarding the love of money. Number one, when you're at work, do you spend more time thinking about the money you're making or the job that you're doing? Do you spend more time thinking about the money you're making or the job that you're doing? Number two, how content are you with how much you have? Do you ever have enough? Number three, it's home. Is it hard to give it? Is it hard to give it? Uh, This year, my son, uh, he was eight years old around Christmas time, and he got a lot of money for Christmas. Uh, I think he had over about $150. And in our home, we have, our kids have three envelopes. You have a spend envelope, a give envelope, and a save envelope. And so they put... uh, they put 10% in their give, and they put 10% in their save, and then the rest they put in their spend envelope. And so he had done, he had received all his money for Christmas, and he had put the money in the proper envelopes. And then one morning, I, I, I caught him, and he was putting more money in his give envelope. And I was curious, how much did he put in there? And I went and I looked at his envelope, and he had taken $80 out of that $150 and put it in his give envelope. So, of course, the wheels started turning, and I started thinking about this. Like, man, I know he really wants to buy some things with his money. He's been talking about all these different things. So, I took over, and I went, and I took the envelope, and I started to take the money out. Well, he just, you know, maybe we've been teaching him a little too much, you know. And he caught me. He caught me taking the money out of his envelope, and he comes up to me, and he says, Dad, that money is God's, and it's going to God. 
is it hard to give it? Is it hard to give it? Here it was, it was hard for me to watch my son give it. Is it hard to give it? Lastly, are you willing to sin to obtain it? Are you willing to sin to obtain income tax? See, the problem with loving money is that it's ignoring what is truly valuable. It's ignoring what we really want. In the sentence prior in, in 1 Timothy there in verse 6, Paul says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness. In 2 Corinthians 3, 5, Paul talks about sufficiency being not from ourselves but from God. And then he says in Philippians 4, he's learned to be content. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. So what Paul is saying here is that if you fall into the trap of loving money, you are ignoring what's really important. You're loving the wrong thing. You're loving the temporal, and it's keeping you from the eternal. See, being rich, being rich is not, it's not about how much you have, but it's about how content you are with what you have. That's why Proverbs 30, verse 8 says, don't give me poverty or riches. Just feed me the food that is my portion. See, a real Christian is not someone who's motivated by the love of money, but by the love of God. The only real way to be rich is to be content. And being content is a virtue that comes from godliness. Isaiah 55, 2 says, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which is not satisfied. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. In Ecclesiastes 5, Solomon writes, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income, for this is vanity. Notice it says, He who loves money, not he who has money. See, money can never buy contentment. Contentment comes out of godliness. And so, in addressing this gap that we're filling here, we need to address our greed for money, our love for money. And then number three, as we move on, our contentment with money. Our contentment. We're required. We are required to be content. Hebrews 13.5 says, In being content with what you have, the second portion of that verse. Keep yourself free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. In Philippians 4, 11 through 13, we find Paul here. He's in prison. He is a, here's a man who's writing from prison, and he is completely without. He says, I have learned, I have learned to be content. I am satisfied with what I have at this point in my life. And Paul goes on to describe four different life circumstances. He says, with humble means. I've learned to be content with humble means. Meaning, he had just a little more than enough. Humble means. Then he says, I've learned to be content with pros in prosperity. That he had a little more, he had more than he needed. And he learned to be content in that circumstance. And then he describes hungry. I learned to be content when I was hungry. And he's describing being completely without. To go hungry. And then he says, abundance. To have way more than enough. And in all these circumstances, all these situations, Paul's saying, I have learned to be content. He has learned the secret to being content. See, a mark of a believer is not someone 
who's controlled by circumstances. And we can look at verse 13 as a secret. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. See, the intent on this verse is not about playing football or, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm going to play better today. The intent is not, the intent is not that. It's in whatever circumstance I find myself, whether prosperity or poverty, there's a peace and a contentment in my heart. Solomon was a great example of this. In 1 Kings, God says, the Lord appears to Solomon and says, ask me, ask me whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. He was content, and when the opportunity arose to ask for more riches, he didn't. He asked for what money could buy. He asked for a discerning heart. He asked for more wisdom so that I could serve you better. Ironically, when God did give Solomon more riches, it led to his downfall. In Ecclesiastes 5, he writes, He who is satis- he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. And so, so far we've looked at, as we fill this void, this gap between, the, between giving and the love behind the gift, we need to address our greed. We need to address our love of money. We need to learn to be content. And then the fourth thing that stands out here in this verse is we must have our confidence in the Lord. See, the way to do this is to trust in the Lord and find your greatest pleasure in the Lord. That's why the last part of this verse says, keep yourself free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, for I will never leave you or forsake you. He is saying there is absolutely no way that I will ever leave you. God will always be with you to faithfully provide for all you need in life. See, the speaker here is God. God is saying, I will never leave you. God hasn't given us a communistic system where we all are appointed the same amount. He's allotted each person a different measure, a different amount. And it's not our responsibility in our lives to try to catch up to the next person. It's our responsibility to be content where he has us. Because in his sovereignty, that's where he's placed us. And if he should choose to give us more, if he should choose to give you more riches, then praise God. But if he should choose not to, then praise God. See, he chose before the foundation of the world to put you where you are. It's wrong to be discontent. It's wrong for us to be discontent with where God has placed us. When we become preoccupied with elevating ourselves up to the next level, when trying to catch up, then we're focusing our energy on the wrong thing. We need to be pursuing godliness and trusting God to provide for our needs. The last part of this verse, after verse 5, he says, Then so we can confidently say, the Lord is our helper. I will never leave you or forsake you, so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. See, this is the application here. The Lord will provide for me. The Lord will help me. See, God gets all the glory. When we, when we focus on giving and we have the right attitude and we address our greed and our love of money and we learn to be content and we put our confidence in God, then God gets the glory. It's not of our own accord that we're doing this, but God is getting the glory because we're fully trusting in Him. 
I will give myself over to what God has called me to do. And I will trust Him and be satisfied in Him. And then he concludes, I will not be afraid. What will man, what will man do to me? If I trust in God, what will man do to me? And so, returning back to our original verse in 1 Corinthians 13, 3, I might give away all I have, even offer myself up to be burned, but not have love, I gain nothing. And so we have this action of giving, and we've addressed the middle of the verse where we want to be able to give with love, with the right attitude. We want to address our greed and our love of money and learn to be content and have our confidence in God. But the Bible also teaches us a lot about giving as well. Paul, Paul teaches us in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. He gives us the benefits of giving. And see, what was happening here is when the church first formed, the Jerusalem church first began in Acts. Over three, overnight, 3,000 were saved. Overnight, 5,000 were saved. And what was happening was people were coming from all around. And they were coming into Jerusalem. And the church was growing. And the, the church grew. And these people would come to me for, for whatever reason. They would come into Jerusalem. And they would accept Christ. And they would, they would follow this new way. But they were being persecuted. They weren't allowed to, to have jobs. They weren't allowed to buy property. So they were extremely poor. And then Paul goes out and he, you know, on his missionary journeys, and he starts these, these other churches begin. In, in Macedonia, we have the, the Philippian church, and we have the, Thessalon the church of Thessalonica. And then in Corinth, we have the Corinthian church begins. And so over time, these other churches grow. And so Paul writes to these other churches, and he pleads for them to give to the church in Jerusalem. Because the church in Jerusalem was extremely poor. And so he asked the churches in Macedonia... To give to the church in Jerusalem. And he asked the church in Corinth to give to this church in Jerusalem. And the expectation was that the church in Corinth was extremely rich. It was kind of like a Las Vegas on a port. And the churches in Macedonia were extremely poor. And so the expectation was that the church in Corinth would give a lot. And the churches in Macedonia would not give very much. But the exact opposite happens. The churches in Macedonia... They gave a lot, and the church in Corinth didn't give very much at all. And so this is where we find Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. He's writing to the Corinthians, and he's laying out for them the benefits of giving. And he says in, uh, in chapter 9, he says, first of all, when we give, God loves a cheerful giver. In chapter 9. And so he's saying, basically, when you give, the word for love that Paul is using is, again, that word agape, which is that highest level of love. When you give, God bestows upon you this special love. So he's telling the Corinthian people that when you give, God loves you. God loves you in the most deepest, special way. And then he's saying, God will be glorified. In 2 Corinthians uh, 9, he's saying... God will be glorified. They will glorify God because of your submission. When this Gentile church in Corinth would give to the, the Jewish church in Jerusalem, God was glorified. They were glorifying God when they received these gifts. So when we give, Paul's saying that God will be glorified. And that's another benefit of giving. And then Paul goes on to say that when we give, God will bestow back upon us generosity. God will give back 
to us. Proverbs 19.17 says, Whoever is generous to the poor, lends to the Lord, and he will repay him. Proverbs 11.24 says, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and suffers only one. And then in Luke 6.38, Give, and it will be given unto you. God will generously give that. Malachi 3.10, Test me in this. Test me in this. If I will not pour out the windows that have. Paul is saying the benefit of giving. He's telling the Corinthian people, the Corinthian church, when you give, God will bless you. And then lastly, he's saying, when you give, there will be a greater fellowship with other believers. When you're joined in to what God is doing, there will be a deeper and greater fellowship. Imagine when you have this Jewish church receiving these gifts from the Gentile church. The fellowship, the connection, the bonds, the relationships that will be forming. And he's saying when you give, when you're part of what God is doing, that we will gain a greater fellowship with other believers. And so we could be so focused sometimes on the, uh, the circumstance or the validity or the justification behind the gift that we sometimes we shun or we suppress the heart of the gift. This is always, always a heart matter. Sometimes we can be so focused on, on all those little details when we give. But what's really important, what God's really looking at, when we look throughout the whole Bible and see what the Bible says about giving, what the Bible says about money, it's always, always a heart matter. So, so what is all this? Bridging this gap between the gift and the heart. Number one, we want to know, we want to know what the Bible says about money. And number two, I want us to leave here encouraged to manage money God's way, with the proper attitude. There's more than enough resources today to help us you know, better handle our money management. Uh, for example, Dave Ramsey would be a, 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 great, a great place to start. He's got a number of books, he's got podcasts, he's got radio shows. And, he basically teaches a seven-step program. If you're in debt, you know, the first thing to do is put $1,000 in the bank. And then to pay off all your debt from smallest to largest. And then put three to six months of living expenses away in a savings account for an emergency fund. And then he says, then you can invest for retirement. Put 15% for retirement. And then he says to put money away for your kids' education. And then to pay off your house, and live debt-free. And why? So that we can be able to give. So that we can be able to be a part of what God is doing. And too often, I hear Christians, or people say, I'm not good at budgeting. I'm not good at managing my money. My wife handles that. But no. We need to do better. We need to do better because when we address our greed and our love of money, and we learn to be content, and we have confidence in what God is doing, we want to be able to give. We want to be able. So that's the other side of this. If we're not managing our money properly, if we're not being good stewards with our money, with all that God's blessed us with, then even if our heart's in the right place, we're still missing the mark. And we're missing out on the benefits of giving. We'll have the worship team come back up. Lastly, when Paul's speaking to the Philippians, 
in, in Philippians. He's talking about being obedient. And he's stressing the point that their obedience must not only be when he was among them. They must not only be obedient when Paul was among them. He's talking here about, about being sanctified. See, they were already saved. But their sanctification, it hinged upon them on their obedience. And too often, as Christians, sometimes we think, well, since I'm saved, that I'll just be sanctified. Yes, you're saved. But your sanctification requires you to be obedient. And that's what Paul's talking about in Philippians 2, verse 12. He's saying you need to work out your salvation. He's not saying work to be saved, but work to be sanctified. How many of us have sat in church for years and didn't grow? Didn't experience growth? We need to get involved. We need to be obedient. We need to get obedient. Nobody rides in the back seat in this Christian life and is just driven around. We, when Paul's talking here, he's saying it's not let go and let God. Paul's exhorting us, fight the good fight. What better way, what better way for us to be obedient, to work out our salvation, to grow, to be sanctified, than to be good stewards, to learn to be good stewards, to have good stewardship with our money, with the money that God has given us. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I just... I just thank you for this morning, Lord. I just pray that uh, that you will just continue to bless this church, Lord. Lord, I just pray for for your words and your wisdom, Lord. That you would just uh, that you would just be the speaker, Lord God. That you would just take what we've looked at this morning and that you would use it for your glory, Lord. That we would just leave here with a desire to honor you and to serve you with all that you've blessed us with. You've tremendously blessed this church, and you've tremendously blessed each and every one of us, Lord. Lord, help us to, to, to learn to, to not be greedy, to not love money, to be content, to just have our confidence in you.